Okay. Psalm 88. O Lord, the, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Oh, there's an upbeat way to start the new year, isn't it? Let me lead us briefly in prayer and we'll consider this... uh gloriously dark psalm together let's pray heavenly father we thank and praise you that you're the god who speaks you speak to us in your word for our good to make us more like your son our our savior jesus christ and we pray that you do that again for us now as we consider this marvelous psalm it's in jesus name we pray amen brothers and sisters a sad feature of our fallen world is that suffering is universal Except for those who die very young, all people will, to one degree or another, sooner or later, endure some kind of suffering. Many of us here, and hello to you online, many of us, will at some time attend the funeral of our spouse, the funeral of our parent, even far worse, the funeral of our child or of our dear friend. It is probable, purely on a statistical basis, that this year someone or someones from among us will be diagnosed with a significant physical or mental illness. Suffering has many shapes and sizes and comes indiscriminately. Now, wisdom therefore dictates that, of course, we'd uh, do well to have spent some time thinking through how we might deal with suffering, not if but when, It comes. Of course, our Heavenly Father, who knows the fallen world better than we do, has given us what we need to face the inevitable suffering. And some of the best teaching we can get come from the Psalms of Lament, of which Psalm 88 happens to be a fairly unique example. It's unique because unlike the other Psalms of Lament, and I'm sure you picked this up as Janine read, this one has no resolution. No 
ultimate positive, I suppose. How do you sit with suffering is a hard but important question to answer. How do you sit with suffering when it seems needless and unresolved is harder still. But our God knows it's in our best interest to consider such a question. As you can see from the title of the psalm, verse 0, which is actually part of the psalm, it's a song, hence it's something God considers worth learning and repeating and sort of, you know, thinking about how it affects us emotionally. The opening verses of the psalm show us that this is not a song for the outsider, it's a song for the faithful servant of God. Verse 1, Lord, that is Yahweh, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Straight off the bat, the psalmist acknowledges Yahweh alone is the saving God who has the power to hear and to answer prayer. This is a faithful servant of God writing the psalm. And what is his cry about? Well, initially it's about some unspecified but obviously terrible, seemingly long-term suffering that's brought him close to death. He writes in verse 3, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. Now, if you've got a different translation, the word might be transliterated from Hebrew, it's Sheol, uh, death, Sheol, same thing here. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more who are cut off from your care. And so death, at least metaphorically, if not literally, is imminent. And in the psalmist's mind, it represents being cut off from the care of God. Uh, the word sheol actually means... Uh, underworld, and it became sort of a colloquial term to, 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 to refer to a, a place where you're cut off from the presence of God. His situation is so dire, it's as if he's already in the realm of the dead, away from God's care. But imminent death is not the only problem. In the case of this psalmist, there are two other things that make matters worse. Firstly, it's the fact that God has uh, one God is the one ultimately responsible for the suffering. Verse 6, you, the psalmist writes, have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Back in verse 3, it's, I am overwhelmed. And why am I overwhelmed? Well, because you, God, have done it. It's because you, God, have overwhelmed me with all your waves. God is responsible for the suffering. That means that this faithful servant of God currently views himself both as under the care of God, albeit hanging by a thread, but under the care of God, and also under the, I would say, non-final wrath of God. It's possible to be under God's care whilst you endure suffering from his hand. Makes logical sense when you think about the Bible as a whole. At the beginning, uh, after God made the world, humanity rebelled against Him and brought sin and death into the world. That didn't somehow deprive God of His sovereign, powerful control of all things. It just meant that sin and evil immediately came under His sovereign power 
and control. So the psalmist can at one and the same time both acknowledge the care of God as well as cry out the painful truth that God is the one who ultimately stands behind his suffering. Now, I should quickly point out that this doesn't mean that God himself is somehow the agent of evil. If you remember the story of Job, it was uh, Satan who actually does the, the afflicting. But we mustn't shy away from the truth that God is sovereign and in control of all things, including suffering. And for the psalmist who knows Yahweh and his salvation and care, that can be a hard pill to swallow. The other hard thing is the aloneness that human mortality so often brings into focus, which is the case for this guy. Verse 38, you have also taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Uh, Perhaps this person had a long-term illness that made him ceremonially unclean. And as the illness progress, which it's kind of gross to think about, but, you know, it means the bodily fluids start leaking and perhaps that's made him become even more repulsive. We don't know, of course, but the point stands that the path toward the grave is made worse by the fact that it was a path he was taking without companionship. Now, there's an important difference, by the way, between loneliness and what I've said here, aloneness. Loneliness is something all of us have and and will feel from time to time, and it's not pleasant. But when I say aloneness, on the other hand, I I mean the absence of any ultimately meaningful connection with other persons. I suspect that this psalmist felt the loneliness with such intensity that it brings him dangerously close to the aloneness. You see, he still knew the Lord, he's still speaking with God, but he felt as if his suffering was so severe and death so imminent that even that connection would be severed, resulting in actual aloneness. Uh, We are not made for aloneness. One of the worst things you can do to another human being, worse than torture, is long-term solitary confinement, robbing them of any meaningful connection. Sadly, for those who don't know the Lord as Saviour, often the only thing I find that makes them even vaguely aware of how much self-serving sinfulness makes them truly alone is imminent death. You see, all sin by definition is antisocial. The more relationally distant you are from God, by definition, the more relationally distant you become from other people. I know you can be thoroughly sinful and have the semblance of good relationships, but it's not actually meaningful. By the time death is imminent, it's usually far too late and people are far too proud to admit to having wasted their lives. I've actually got no doubt that there are a great number of people who go to the grave with a huge trail of broken and or meaningless relationships behind them and who, for the purposes of self-justification, have gritted their teeth in defiance of God, and at their funeral you hear trite anecdotes about what a great man slash great woman they were, and the song that plays is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, the dumb way, and they tragically descend into the eternal aloneness that they've actually been heading towards for the majority of their wasted lives. 
the psalmist is right to be terrified at the thought of a godless eternity, at the thought of being cut off from God. So again, the psalmist cries out, verse 9, I call to you, Yahweh, every day I spread out my hands to you. And now the intensity increases. He boldly starts to reason with God. He asks a series of rhetorical questions to make the case that it's actually in God's interest to relent and give him resolution. The basic premise is that if God cuts off the psalmist, he'll no longer be able to give praise to God and testify to God's goodness. Verse 10, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? The expected answer each time is an emphatic no. So surely God should relent. This might strike at our cultural sensibility somewhat, but I reckon there's a rightness to the psalmist venting his anger and frustration to the Lord, even to the point where he's driven to reason with God, to try and twist God's arm. I say that because, you know me, I'm into music, it's a thing I like and do a lot of. I've seen a, quite an observable trend in 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 the, the production of congregational Christian music that a lot of Christians mistakenly refer to as worship music over the last 10 or so years. And I see that there's less and less songs about the hope of heaven or about lamenting the suffering that often goes hand in hand with being a follower of Jesus. Such a trend, I think, just fuels the unbiblical notion that when things are hard, we need to stay away or distance ourselves from our church family because obviously being a follower of Jesus is about being happy in the here and now. But God wants his people to be able to sing songs like this as much as anything else. Psalms wherein the writer is so desperate he even tries to hold God ransom to his own character. And with that we come to the climax of the psalm, verse 13, but I cry to you for help, Lord in the morning, my prayer comes before you. This is the third time the psalmist cries out to God. And in the Bible, it's often on the third time or on the third day when things get confirmed or where God gets vindicated. And as the mercies of God are new every morning, given that the psalmist is now crying out in the morning, in the new day, we're expecting that the resolution will come as it does with the other psalms of lament. But in this case, there is no resolve at all. Verse 14, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Which, by the way, is the worst thing in all the suffering, is that God hides his face. From my youth I've suffered, I've been close to death. I've borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor, darkness is my closest friend. And by the way, in the Hebrew, this was written, the, the sentence structure means that the last word is darkness. That's how the psalm ends. And it's at this point, once we get over the shock that there's no resolve, that we start to realise that what this song offers is not resolution but validation. Yes, it is the case 
this side of Jesus' return, that there is suffering for which we'll have no resolve. And such suffering can indeed befall the faithful servants of God. You'd be forgiven for thinking otherwise when you walk into the big Christian bookshops and see all manner of books telling you that worldly health, wealth and success, they're the marks of the true faithful disciple. But unexplained suffering can be part of the life of the faithful servants of God. The psalmist is indeed faithful. He never considers the possibility of ceasing his conversation with God, nor of looking somewhere else for help. And more than an end to his suffering, the psalmist desires that Yahweh's presence be manifest to him. He is a faithful child of God. I could only hope to have such trust and unwavering resolve when the suffering comes my way. In fact, I've often noticed it's the Christian's with the long-term illness or the Christians who have endured the great tragedies who seem to have the most unwavering faith. Unresolved suffering can indeed form a part of the life of the righteous. To give a hopelessly inadequate little illustration, I remember pinning down one of my children when he was quite small so that two needles, and I think actually a third, three needles, could be pushed into his legs. He had done nothing wrong to deserve such pain, nor was he wrong to be angry and scared and to cry and, and to cry out to me, just as he wasn't wrong to look to me at the same time for comfort and relief, even as it was happening. There is no way possible he could have understood it, nor did I see fit to explain it to him, Neither he nor I were unrighteous throughout that ordeal and both of us suffered. But of course, even though the psalm ends where it does, we're rightly unsettled such that we hopefully are provoked to, to look some, somewhere beyond what we see in this song alone. I think that's one of the points of the song. Like the Torah... The Psalter, that is the collection of the, all the 150 Psalms in the Bible, the Psalter is divided into five books. It was compiled in such a way that each of the five books kind of loosely corresponded to a part of the history of God's people. And Psalm 88 happens to come just before the end of the darkest period of Book 3, during which there are a number of Psalms that lament the collapse of the Davidic monarchy, the, the the kingship of David and his successors. Israel, of course, as we, most of you, if not all of us, will know from the history and the Bible, had misplaced their hope by putting it in kings rather than in the God who provided the kingship. We saw the seed of that in our last sermon series on 1 Samuel. And, of course, to have your ultimate hope in anything other than God himself is to ironically end up completely hopeless. Ten northern tribes by this stage had been wiped out by the Assyrians or dispersed. The southern tribes had been taken captive or about to be captive by the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem and its temple, signifying that God had left his people. The lament of an individual psalmist who saw death as synonymous with being cut off from God and beyond his care 
gives a rather fitting theological expression to what had taken place at a national level. The psalm shows that it's possible to be a faithful servant of God amidst the suffering even when there's no resolution. But no faithful servant of God can ever stop looking for resolution. And so we rightly wonder if the death of Israel, like the death of the psalmist, means that God's goodness and wonders will no longer be made known. As I'm sure most, if not all of you would guess, God, of course, would end up doing something that meant that the dead who inhabit Sheol would not necessarily be separated from God. God himself entered the fallen world as a king in the line of David. His name is Jesus, and we celebrated that, uh, that occasion just last week. Gee, it seems like a long time ago for me, doesn't it? Christmas was last week. And as Jesus approached the cross, his closest friends abandoned him. And as he hung on the cross, Luke tells us, and we see it best in the King James Version, that Jesus' acquaintances stood afar off, which happens to be the same turn of phrase we see in verse 8 of our psalm. Jesus, though truly righteous, suffered the death of aloneness by which God turned his face away in judgment. Naturally, as a righteous man, Jesus called out to God in anguish, asking why he was forsaken, and he received no answer. But as I'm sure most, if not all of us know, Jesus' death was the means by which he overthrew the power of Sheol to keep people separate from God and God's ultimate eternal care. The needless suffering of the faithful is not resolved by the psalmist, but Psalm 88 stands as a signpost to the personal work of Jesus, who stands victorious over death and suffering, and who shares that victory with those who have their trust in him as Lord. In fact, for those who trust in him, all suffering, even suffering without clear reason or resolution, can't help but to refine our trust in him. The Apostle Peter would say to some early Jewish believers, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your trust, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so to return to our key point, it's biblical to say that unresolved suffering can form a part of the life of the righteous. And it's equally biblical to say that Jesus brings ultimate or final resolve to inexplicable suffering and neither point cancels out the other. So, how does our Heavenly Father teach us, prepare us, to sit with suffering, including unresolved suffering when it comes? Well, straight off the bat, we need to learn and remember that it is entirely possible that God's people can suffer for reasons unknown. And if there's no clear reason, we need to resist any temptation to make one up. We know ultimately that neither suffering nor the grave will separate us from the love of God. And that all suffering can rightly be said to be refining our faith. We know there are cause and effect type sufferings. But apart from that, when there's no discernible reason for the suffering, we'd be ungodly 
to make one up. Some of us, no doubt, have heard horror stories of something dreadfully tragic befalling a brother or sister, and then someone from the church tells them, well, it's because they did something wrong or because they didn't have enough faith that the bad things are happening. Not only can that be pastorally damaging, but it's also, frankly, untrue. Secondly, it's not only permissible, but spiritually mature to acknowledge pain to God. One of the great lessons of the psalm is that even with no resolve in sight, it's still a profoundly godly and sensible thing to get to the stage where you can cry out to God and recognise that he alone is ultimately and sovereignly in control of what you've endured and that he truly cares on account of what he's done in Christ. For some people, when the suffering comes, it's very easy to get to that point. But not for everyone. For others, it can actually be profoundly difficult. You see, I sometimes think it's a rare gift for those who have suffered perhaps in their youth or from their youth, like this guy has, perhaps on account of a less than ideal childhood, to ever get to the point where they can openly acknowledge the pain to God. Most people are so sort of horrendously terrified of acknowledging pain to themselves that their entire being works towards justifying and normalising and or deliberately forgetting the suffering such that they have no idea it's even as bad as it is, even though it just affects their whole personality and, and, and behaviour. In the end, it becomes impossible for them to get to the point where they cry out to God because they've denied the problem so much to themselves that they no longer see it even exists. But as Jesus has removed any sensible fear of separation from God's care and goodness, we actually have the safety of being able to, albeit slowly as the case may be, work out how to acknowledge true turmoil in the sight of God. His spirit can and does affect such change. It might be that you need to pray. If you have a sense that, yeah, I've probably, you know, sort of justified away some horrible things... Uh, that, that God will give you the ability and the, uh, the strength, really, to, to sort of acknowledge that. Finally, it's important, contrary to sometimes what we think, what our intuition says, to lean on or lean into church family rather than kind of distance ourselves when the suffering comes. Now, I don't know about the person who wrote the psalm, but as for us, we all have the one Spirit of God who indwells us. His Spirit is among us and within us. And we're all permanently in His presence. That's something that we all have completely in common as followers of Jesus. The psalmist may have been dangerously close to aloneness on account of having been rejected by his companions. But one of the differences this side of Christ is that we are actually only ever always united by the Spirit of God at work within us. And we have every reason to lean on, to bear with one another when it comes to difficulty and suffering. Weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. You actually, if you think that because things are difficult, you need to distance yourself from your Christian fellowship, you deprive other servants of God to serve in honour of him. The right course of action is always to lean in, not 
out from your spiritual family. And frankly, one of the best contexts within which you can sort of enjoy that leaning in is with small groups from within your church family. I think we've got this thing that we can sort of use to do that. We call it, what do we call it? Growth groups. That's the thing. If you're a member of our church, make sure you get in a growth group. This year, the sign-ups are happening currently. Uh, you can put it on your uh, thing. That's, that's no other implication. Just to remember, if you're a member of our church, get yourself in a growth group. With that, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you reveal to us the truth regarding our fallen world, including the validating truth that sometimes suffering can be without resolve, without apparent reason. But that even then, all suffering serves to refine our trust and our faith, which is of greater worth than gold. And that even then, because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that there will be ultimate resolve. And that even then, we have a church family that are set up and established by the power of your spirit uh, to help us cope, that we can weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Father, we pray that... Uh, we will do as uh, your children, take advantage of uh, the, the, the context you give us uh, with a church family uh, and enjoy the richness of fellowship, particularly that that comes through growth groups throughout 2022. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.